for their hard work. We know a lot of work goes into both this publication, the annual energy outlook, and all of the other great work that is done by the EIA that so many of us in the energy Wonka sphere uh, rely on to do our work. And so we're really pleased to be able to host this discussion. Um, I also want to congratulate uh, the uh, administrator, Dr. Excuse me, <clears throat> Dr. Linda Capuano, uh, who is not only going to present the uh, outlook this morning, but has also been really innovative in her approach the last few years where we do a presentation and then we have two substantive panel discussions following on, uh, which I think is a great thing. You know, we recently did a podcast on energy outlooks and their value, and their value is in starting conversation. Uh, it's on having a dialogue around what the future may or may not look like and what some of the constraints and variables are, what the knowns and unknowns are. And so we think this is a really exceptional format for doing that and sort of congratulate EIA for, uh, for that idea uh, as well as uh, coming to a public forum like this to do it. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce uh, the administrator of the EIA, uh, Linda Capuano. She's going to give a presentation of the outlook. Then we'll take some questions. And then we'll start on this uh, first of two panel discussions discussions about uh, some of the uh, uncertainties in the demand outlook for 2050. And then second, we'll have a panel discussion on some of the trade trends. So looking forward to a really great discussion. Thank you very much, Linda, for being here. Let me make sure it's awake. There we go. Okay. So thank you and welcome to the public release of the, U the U.S. Energy Information Administration's Annual International Energy Outlook 2019. I'd like to start by thanking CSIS for hosting us and structuring the panels. It's a lot of work in the background. Uh, this is this. This IEO is um, modeled, a modeled projection of the global energy system from now until 2050 and is one of two long-term energy projections published to fulfill EIA's Department of Energy Organization Act of 1970. This year's IEO includes a reference case and four side cases with differing input assumptions to address the range of uncertainties in making long-term energy projections. To model the impact of economic growth on energy consumption, EIA adjusted the assumptions around regional growth factors. For example, using 3% compound annual growth rate for the global gross domestic, domestic product GDP in the reference case, and 3.7 and 2.7% in the high and low economic growth cases, respectively. Similarly, to examine the uncertainty in world energy prices, EIA altered oil demand and supply assumptions to achieve $100 per barrel for the reference case and $185 and $45 per barrel for the high and low oil price cases. Next, before getting into the details, let's look at five important insights from this year's IEO. First, manufacturing centers are shifting towards Africa and South Asia, especially India, resulting in energy consumption growth. Industrial and electric power generation demands in non-OECD Asia, excluding China, and averages about 0.4% per year growth to 2050. So oil consumption does not peak, despite the tremendous growth in electricity use, which shows more growth in the residential sector excuse me, the residential sector when compared to industrial, commercial, and with growth in electric vehicles, which are projected to reach over 400 million vehicles in 2050. Looking at transportation in more detail, the graph on the left shows that OECD world consumption of energy for transportation declines by 1%. 
while on the right, non-OECD grows close to 77% by 2050. The declining transportation demand drives a decline in OECD liquid fuel consumption as shown on the left graph. While the graph on the right projects that non-OECD liquid fuel consumption will nearly double as economies and populations grow. Growth in non-OECD Asia is projected to account for about three-quarter rapid increase in renewables and electricity. And with that, I will conclude my comments on the EIA IEO 2019, and I'll thank you for your uh, attention, and we'll move into the Q&A. And as is our uh, practice, we have brought many of the EIA experts here to answer your questions so that they can give you a broader or more detailed uh, response to your areas of interest. I think we have something like 15 people here, and I'll introduce Angelina LaRose, who's the director of the Office of Integrated and, in and International Energy Analysis, and she will direct the questions towards the EIA expert. Thank you, Angelina. Okay, great. Thanks, Linda. That was, uh, that was really great. There was a lot there uh, that we went through relatively quickly, so I'm glad we have a good amount of time to sort of unpack some of it. Maybe what I'll do is I'll start with a couple questions and then we'll move to the audience. I think uh, two things. And is very much based on economic growth, a GDP range um, for the high and low uh, case. And so that obviously affects the amount of energy consumed and it'll affect the amount of CO2 emissions. Uh, so it, they do flow through the model. So they are distinct, ex distinct cases. It's not that we change one variable, that variable affects other variables. Okay. Did you guys want to add anything? Do you have anything specific that you might want to call out? Um, hi, I'm Elizabeth Sendich, the macroeconomic analysis team at Energy Information Administration. Uh, so we, we develop these cases offline and we don't actually change GDP. What we do is we change the components of GDP to target an overall, sorry, to target an overall growth rate. Uh, so it's not something that we change at the headline level. We do in fact deal with the individual detail of the composition of each of these economies, primarily targeting um, consumers, so that would be the personal consumption expenditure that you see in the expenditure. It's how we phrase it on the page, so we'll go back and make sure that we're communicating better. Great, okay, additional questions. Oh wow, okay. Let's go uh, right here in the middle and then we'll come back over here. Thanks, Tom Tiernan with the FOSS report. I believe one of the staffers, I wanna make sure I heard it correct, that energy storage technologies are not included in the projections or, um, any projection on when that might happen, and if so, um, because it's so because it's energy, um, how that, if that would be its own category, because it it stores power from renewables or gas or fossil or, or whatever. So let's distinguish between the AEO and the IO. Just so you know, so at the national level, we do include storage, but on the global level, right. So in, in our annual energy outlook, our domestic outlook, we do include energy storage both as existing and to, to build new. Um, energy storage, and that is something that sort of as we speak is being developed for the international model. Um, my expectation is that it, it should be in by the next IEO, right? Yeah. 
So, I'll, I mean, that's the administrative question. It's a resource limitation. Um, we do energy-related calculations on emissions, and we, uh, but our primary, so shall I start from the beginning? Our primary uh, responsibility is to look at consumption and production, and uh, CO2-related emissions are a byproduct of that, and so we do gather that data and calculate it, and we go as far as our budget allows in collecting data, or as far as the data is reliable enough to collect, and when I say reliable, it means can meet uh, statistical quality uh, standards for samples, showing that it's representative. So there's a whole complicated uh, series of things that we need to do when we collect data. So it was not intentional. It's just a. Uh, my answer. Uh, am I answering the right I, I question? Think, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It is a. Yeah. Is it a data, a historical data issue, and in a. Yeah. Um, that's one of the largest. Trends. We would like to do it all, so that would be our intent, uh, but we have to uh, use judgment and type of policy parameter that we look at. But we catalog policies as best we can, um, region to region uh, throughout the world, and, and uh, a, you know, a, a, a top level national policy is definitely something we take note of. But underneath that, somewhere is a compliance track, and really for us, it's probably more about time frames. So, so let me make a comment to make sure there's no confusion here. So we have two reports. So I'm going to just clarify some things. We have two annual reports, our annual energy outlook, which is the United States. In the United States annual energy outlook, we use current policy and regulations. We don't generalize. So that's absolute. Okay, now we're talking about international. International, as you can imagine, and also by the number of questions we're getting, is very difficult to collect data. It's very difficult to be precise. We are challenged just like other organizations that do international. And so uh, when we say generally, we intend, and I'll, again, our principles are we attempt in every way to use the policy unless we see, see data.
to do the kind of modeling that the EIA is now developing. And, uh, but it's always been one of my favorites uh, in, yeah, because of my international background. And I enjoyed uh, working uh, with the team every year that the IEO was published. And I believe this is the first IEO uh, since Linda Doman's uh, passing. And Linda was, uh, I know you're not supposed to have favorites when you're leading a large organization, but Linda was one of my favorites. And she passed away earlier this year and uh, always enjoyed working with her on the IEO. So uh, I think of this as maybe uh, nostalgic in uh, remembering Linda. And uh, I know all of your former colleagues do too. But uh, the other thing is um, you always wind up getting compared with EIA when you're publishing the modeling, I'm sure, into the new EIA model have grappled with these. And we're going to hear from uh, two other speakers, Gregor uh, Pesco and Mac uh, Lawrence, about those issues. So. Uh, Without uh, going more detail into their biographies, because you have them before you, I'll uh, turn the floor over to uh, Kevin, who we're fortunate here at CSIS also have Kevin as a resident associate, in addition to his day job as uh, managing director of Clearview. Kevin, thanks for being here. Thanks, Guy. <clears throat> Thank you very much uh, for having me. Uh, thanks for EIA for all you do. Uh, I suppose I should say sort of ladies, gentlemen, analysts, administrators, because uh, it's, it's quite an audience full of people who have something to say and who know a lot. Uh, so it's very, <clears throat> it's very much a pleasure to be here today. Unfortunately, I've been given the topic of policy uncertainty, which is the, <clears throat> it's very much the skunk at the picnic uh, when it comes to modeling things. Uh, so when my very is produced in the, in the production of oil and wow, look at the energy dependence America has. Look at the efficiency gains in buildings in Central and Western Europe. Look at all the things that have happened. You know, the economic result is what matters. And when it doesn't work, the economic result is what matters. And that's what everybody talks about. So maybe at some level, uh, we're, we're not always focused on the policy. It's hard to model. It's, it's hard to understand how it can change things. Uh, and when it does happen, it's hard to see. Uh, all those things can make it easy to leave it out. But leave it out at your peril. So I'm going to take you through three sort of vignette slides to contextualize discussion. And then I'm going to conclude with exactly one policy prediction with regard to the interval between 2018 and 2050. Because I've got to be very clear. Our firm doesn't look that far ahead. Uh, we're myopic as hell compared to EIA. Uh, we can see about 2020 and only if we squint, uh, but we do our very best to try to understand the intermediate future with relation to the distant future. Uh, and so I'm going to give you sort of a, three vignettes. Unfortunately, I, on the demand side, I've simplified it. It contracts, it expands, and at some point, consumers make a decision, often, unfortunately, locking in low efficiency, uh, when it seems like it's the best time to buy because energy prices are low, is often the time when uh, the most optimistic purchasing behaviors happen. But government, what do they do first? This is uh, perhaps US specific in some cases. Uh, usually they investigate when the prices are high. Who's, who's responsible for this? Uh, but then there's incentives for alternative technologies. Efficiency and performance standards show up uh, and after a while, those incentives start to roll off because they're expensive. When the prices are lower, they're no longer as, as valid, uh, politically speaking, uh, as policies. Again, 
policies constrained by economics and politics. And then at some point, efficiency standards tend to lag or lapse. Can anyone think of any recent examples? I'm sure there are none. Uh, there are actually quite many, and they're not for the first time. Efficiency standards, vehicle efficiency standards have come and gone in past cycles for the exact same reason. So one of the challenges of policy uncertainty is the cyclic. The world was running out of hydrocarbons and was trying to reduce emissions at the same time, and a carbon molecule emitted and a hydrocarbon saved uh, could be linked to the same policies. Or hydrocarbon, hydrocarbon not consumed, a carbon emission not emitted, uh, that kind of thing. Scarcity uh, and, and environmental values aligned. Interestingly, as the U.S. became more uh, independent energy-wise, uh, net imports reliance, energy security, essentially improved as net imports fell, uh, gas substitution for coal reduced emissions, and there was a lucky confluence. But here's one of the challenges about policy. You may think that there's been something like two decades of perfect policy alignment with economics, just because there has. Turns out that scarcity aligned with environmental causes rather well, and then shifting fuels aligned with environmental benefits rather well. But they're not aligning so well anymore. <clears throat> Emissions are rising uh, as net imports are falling. That scissoring apart of the trend lines is an economic conflict with what otherwise was already a difficult policy to enact. Trade deals without climate uh, agreements. We're, we're at the very cusp of this. The US Congress may not be persuaded to save the world, but saving commerce is something they've done in the past. Europe sued over tax law in 2000 and again in 2002. In 2004, a 5% tariff rose 1% a month, every month from March until October. In October, our manufactured goods producers and our lawmakers uh, saw eye to eye and the Congress changed tax law so that the U.S. could continue to sell into Europe. In short, commercial forces could also bring energy policy into play. Did I make anything easier about policy predictions? I did not, but full employment for everyone in the room. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. And uh, next we're going to hear from Mac Lawrence, who is a director at Navigant and has thought a lot in his role as head of research about technology and innovation in energy. Thanks, Mac, for coming. Thanks, Guy. And thanks to CSIS for space and how it's unfolding. And so we see quite a few perspectives uh, intersecting in the space going forward. And of course, uh, when we're predicting the future, as we've, we've heard all morning, you know, perspective is everything. Um, and we won't always agree. Uh, there's, you know, we're going to read the tea leaves differently. Um, there are two universal truths that I'll point to. And, um, uh, and, and this is uh, really gleaned from the day-to-day the, the -day research that my team does, which is focused on emerging clean tech technology and how that's disrupting the energy space. Uh, number one, uh, I think it's safe to say that, that emerging technology is almost always overhyped. We get excited about new technology. We, we think about all the possibilities. We tend to focus on one application and run with it, you know, kind of Bitcoin is the classic example today um, in terms of the, the, the broader opportunity around blockchain. Um, number two, and, and contradicting the first point a little bit, but equally important is the fact that when we forecast these technologies going forward, what we found with emerging technology uh, specifically is that we're, we're usually too conservative. The, the, you know, generally speaking, uh, this energy transformation is really a story about 
you know, demand decreasing or, or flat in the developed world, uh, increasing in, in the developing world. It's an infrastructure uh, challenge. How do we uh, maintain existing infrastructure, make it smarter, more resilient? Um, and then how do we build out new infrastructure to keep pace with demand in, in developing economies? And then, of course, integrating renewables and DER and access to, to those, those resources is, is, a, is a major problem and challenge going forward. So how does this play out? Um, when we look at the power sector, uh, we, we see this move away from a linear value chain, uh, you know, where we have centralized generation, a hub and spoke model, one-way power flow to this two-way, highly networked uh, distributed grid. And, and the easy way to think about this, um, and, and this is a technology lens, but um, in terms of how this grid operates going forward in the next couple of decades, we see it you know, increasingly cleaner. Um, it's more distributed, uh, more mobile. We're going to see EVs plugging, and pl uh, and plugging into the network at different points. Reality, a different paradigm. Um, on, the, on the existing core business, uh, it's important to free up capital. And, to, and resources so we can invest going forward in, in new potential. On the new business model side, um, the future business side, which we see increasingly dis disrupting the status quo, uh, you know, it's, it's iterating quickly on new products and services, uh, uh, deploying new business models, having an appetite of, uh, uh, for failure. Um, this is, uh, these are all attributes that I would not uh, credit the, the energy industry with um, broadly today, but it's certainly a culture shift that's, that's going to need to happen to be able to deal with the, the, the rate of disruption that we see occurring. So turning to business model attributes, so I'm going to run through just a, a few examples here. Um, it always starts with a customer, and this is probably one of the most cl cliche ideas uh, out there today, but it's absolutely critical. Um, and that's you know, starting with the customer mindset, the customer ex expectation, which we see shifting significantly in the energy space, moving away from just in the power sector, moving away from just the expectation of safety. Um, and then if you compare that with the, the green box, this so-called network orchestrator, these are essentially companies that leverage digital technologies, don't own any assets, um, and, you know, the, the Ubers, the Airbnbs out there um, have you know, proven, uh, as we've all seen in the news, to be highly profitable and much more scalable in terms of businesses. Whether they'll be successful long time, of course, is, uh, in the long run is yet to be seen. But um, we have yet to see a true network orchestrator in the energy industry uh, emerge today. Um, there's obviously many challenges to getting to that, to that, uh, to that place. Um, but the, the bottom line here is we see the margins on assets uh, decreasing substantially over time. So being in a, in a large centralized generation business is just going to be far more risky going forward. Um, we, we look, uh, you know, in terms of business model uh, innovation, looking for value stream diversification. This is no longer about commodities, but around the value of data uh, and, and financial flows two-way. Uh, consumers becoming prosumers and participating in the market. How do you access those value streams? Play out, um, you know, really re relates back to the to the policy trends that we talked about earlier, uh, technology innovation and customer demand. Um, I think that the best pathway forward is to follow the infrastructure turnover. Um, and, and again, this is going to be at a smaller scale than what we've seen in the past. But we can see those infrastructure trends on the on the left here. Um, we have a significant hill to climb, uh, not just from a climate sustainability standpoint, but just in terms of keeping pace with the, the infrastructure needed to support economic growth going forward, as you can see in the UN stat uh, on the right here. So I'll stop there. Uh, uh, look forward to answering any questions and, and uh, the rest of the discussion. Thank you, Matt. Thank you very much.
Now we're going to hear from uh, Gregor Pesco. He's uh, one of the leading economists analyzing climate change issues at the World Bank, as well as uh, it has extensively uh, published uh, in uh, leading journals on that subject. Thank you, Gregor. Thank you very much. In order to kind of tame this creativity a little bit, uh, we, need to, we need to really be careful and, and really think about the drivers of the future. And, you know, uh, it, it was very, you know, the discussion today very much centered about, you know, which drivers are, you know, related to kind of autonomous forces of technologies and markets and which, tri which, which drivers are related to more subjective forces of policies the choices that people are going to make are going to make that are not yet made uh, including by the people who have not yet been born so uh, in, in our thinking about the future we, we can try to understand uh, the, the market and technology autonomous drivers um, uh, which uh, you know mark have, have have alluded to many of them already which uh, do um, you know, which are associated with, which, with a certain kind of pattern of megatrends uh, that this way or another are related to what we call becoming quite blurry. Now, this thinking about business as usual is really related, is usually related to projections that are based on very few variables that, that were quite good predictors in the past. And the, the, the main one is what, what is in this orange part, which is the, 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 the level of uh, um, of activity in the global and national economies. So, yeah, the, the economic growth used to be a very good predictor of, you know, all sorts of drivers of uh, energy consumption, uh, um, energy production, um, especially that we can, you know, assume that a lot of developing countries uh, are, you know, are going to catch up with the level of uh, income that we have in our uh, in OECD countries, uh, so this urbanization as well as, uh, as the growing aspirations of the global middle class, especially in Asia um, and, and 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 very soon in Africa, uh, notably driven policies. But it's also about you know the whole kind of mission-oriented innovation and all the all the realization of countries like China, for instance, that. Uh, you know, their future role in a global economy cannot, can no longer rely on um, export-driven heavy manufacturing, you know, due to the low labor costs, but they have to really jump towards the technology frontier and reinvent themselves uh, in the global economy, which has a huge implications on the future patterns of energy use in China and similar countries. Um, um, we heard about border adjustment taxes. It's another kind of type of policy instrument that that, that looked completely wild five years ago as a as a kind of you know heresy in the among economists. But it, it becomes a kind of mainstream conversation at the moment. Um, you know, among not, not only economists, by politicians. I mean, if you if level of uncertainty equals more or less one-third of the global demand uh, for that period, and if we extend this graph to 2050, the level of uncertainty would be around 100% of the uh, global oil demand, because all, this, all the uh, climatic models tell us that uh, 
in order to stabilize climate at around 2 degrees, in 2050, we need to have uh, zero net global greenhouse gas emissions. That means that we still can have some consumption of oil, gas, and coal. We can still burn some fossil fuels, but only if we have massive negative emissions and in terms of storage of carbon in, uh, in biological systems or in the geological formations. So I'm not here to judge which projection is right or wrong. And that's not the point of making the projections. And, and I think that's, that's the kind of the message that I'd like to convey here is that it's very useful to have reference or baseline or kind of current CO2 emissions are covered by any sort of explicit carbon prices. Yeah? Only 1% of the total CO2 emissions globally um, is priced at the level that uh, is compatible with the two-degree uh, goal of the Paris Agreement. That th and these are mainly you know, uh, emission taxes in, in, in Sweden, in, in, in Switzerland, uh, Liechtenstein, uh, Luxembourg, Finland, France, and Norway. But majority of the emissions are still uh, you know, uh, either untaxed or, ta or covered with a very low carbon taxes. Now, if we look at the at the implicit pricing of carbon through energy taxes, you know, this is the, our colleagues from OECD are doing a very, useful, very interesting work on this. We can see that, again, there are some perverse incentives embedded in the current uh, energy taxation from the point of view of alignment with the, Paris, with the goals of the Paris Agreement, which is that although liquid fuels in transport are taxed to conclude with, uh, with uh, something that's, uh, that I think is very important going forward, which is what about the countries and, uh, and industries that, are, that rely on fossil fuels? You know, how, what it means what it means for them and you know we are just uh, going to, to soon publish a book which we wrote about it uh, you know which look at the, you know what the low carbon transition can mean for these fossil fuel dependent countries because many of them you know unlike uh, you know us um, are relying primarily on fossil fuels as their source of uh, revenues on heavy industry as their source of kind of uh, non rent profits so and that's, you know, how do we manage this transition um, as, as a global community is very important. And how do we create the space for the fossil fuel dependent countries to participate in all these mega trends in a way that is not threatening to them, that does not uh, undermine their, their development? Panel uh, Q&A session. Uh, so I'll take the advantage of being uh moderator to ask a couple to get started while you're thinking about your own questions. Kevin, I know you spend, as you said, so a lot of time thinking about very short-term issues, the nature of your business. One of the most recent short-term uh, issues has involved the uh, massive attack on uh, Abqaq in Saudi Arabia. And I'm hearing from the advocates of domestic, mainly oil, saying, see, this shows us why we need to step up our investment in infrastructure so that we could produce more from the Permian Basin, take away more natural gas capacity, uh, uh, export uh, more natural gas, produce more natural gas. On the other hand, the advocates of a quick transition away from fossil fuels 
say, I've told you so. Um, you know, many utilities have, have fought very hard to, to kind of protect the status quo um, because that's a substantial shift away from, you know, the way the market is set up. So, you know, I don't think they're, they're wrong per se or anything like that, but, they, they, you know, they're grappling with that reality and what it means in terms of just the, 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 the assumptions that undergird the industry today. On the other path, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, they're playing a much more offensive game uh, of more of late than, than I would say, you know, say five years ago. And I think more and more of the, the investor-owned utilities, I would say munis and co-ops are a little further out in front and just because they have a little more flexibility and they have a more a tighter relationship with their, um, you know, their constituencies or, or their, uh, their customers. But the IOUs are certainly starting to embrace now the, the reality and, and I think um, trying to understand how they can, uh, you know, uh, integrate some of these renewable plays um, more proactively. And that looks more like the, the old business than necess necessarily something new right now. So, you know, looking at community solar programs and things like that where they can, you know, kind of own the assets. Um, and Not a penalty. You know, carbon price is a fee for service. You know, is is a, is a, is a is a payment for for a real cost that uh, fossil fuels impose on uh, on the actors in the economy, whether they are present agents or the future agents. So it's not a penalty. Um, it's a fee. You know, for the it's it's a compensation for the damage that uh, emissions related to the combustion of fossil fuels uh, cause. Yeah, why the rates of um, implicit carbon taxes on liquid fuels are higher than on coal and gas, um, it's, it's, it's quite easy to explain. I mean, first of all, these are not explicit carbon taxes that I was talking about. These are carbon content embedded in the uh, energy taxes. And, you know, liquid fuels are, are, are a very good base for energy taxation because, you know, it's easy to, to control them and they are inputs to final consumption. Fuels in U.S., it's, it's, a, it's a few times lower than in Europe. And, you know, you can see that over a few generations, it's, it led to a completely different patterns of urbanization, it completely different patterns of, uh, of, of, of transport networks. Um, so going forward, if we, you know, if we want to have a policy-induced change uh, of urbanization and transport uh, and energy networks, I mean, we will have to think about uh, aligning energy taxation with the full social costs that different energy products uh, impose on society. Bill? Bill Icord, consultant. Uh, Kevin, in your remarks, you talked about um, energy efficiency measures, and by what you were saying, I'm sort of extrapolating that maybe you're talking about transportation efficiency measures, uh, but but uh, of them finding their way into trade agreements as opposed to the you know incumbent capital stock means that if if that were going to be your 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 main compliance mechanism. If, you're, if your goal were to sell into Europe, which is regulated by an explicit price that could soon broaden and externalize, and you were hoping that efficiency standards would be your, your mitigating compliance mechanism to, to eliminate your tax burden crossing the border with goods into Europe, you'd have to wait a long time. So uh, there's, there's different kinds of standards that are much faster, uh, more, prescript, more prescriptive standards that eliminate things or, or phase them down quickly. Uh, but efficiency standards tend to be very slow uh, in, in propagating when you have long-lived capital stock. Where they've not been slow, when you have short-lived capital stock, like light bulbs. 
That happened fast. Any others? I guess we have room. Yes. Just a quick follow-up to that. So on the trade, I'm sorry, I have a loud voice. So um, on the trade adjustment policy, you, you, your prediction was that um, that would be the source of even a, a country resistant to putting carbon prices on being forced. These are assigned and lifted, assessed by the border uh, controllers of different countries. And, uh, you know, there are WTO mechanisms by which this can be done more or less gracefully, but there's nothing graceful about it. Uh, safe to say that the, the era of a top-down global carbon price and the global federalism that went with it died in 2009. Okay, I just can I quickly add to it, you know, Russia has decided to ratify Paris Agreement and the main industrial lobby of Russia, which is Union of Industrialists and Entrepreneurs, have been fiercely against it. They were convinced by the threat of the border adjustment taxes. I mean, if you look at their, if you look at their statement, which supports the ratification of the Paris Agreement, it says bluntly, we may believe that you know the Western countries can use you know Russia non-participation in Paris Agreement as another pretext to increase tariffs on our goods and services. So I mean, countries take it seriously. Well, I have to uh, time for our next panel, and I don't want to take any any more of their time. So please join me in thanking Kevin, Mack, and Gregors. Thank you, guys. at a time when the U.S. has implemented policies that has largely cut off Iran from uh, international oil markets. Venezuela's production is also, um, is also uh, very low, exports of around 100 to 200,000 barrels uh, a day. Uh, and this is quite a turnaround from back in 2008 when we were, when we were waiting on bated breath for every 100,000 barrels a day of oil up or down from Nigeria as we were trying to figure out how we were going to handle this. Um, some of the other things that you've seen in terms of the changes from a geopolitical standpoint is certainly from OPEC, which has really recognized some of the change uh, in, in what has occurred. I was at the Thanksgiving 2014 OPEC meeting when OPEC decided we're not going to cut production. We want to give what, what was termed a good sweating to the industry and really bring uh, production down. Obviously, they had shale in their sites, but they had Canada in their sites and Brazil and a lot of other countries uh, that, had, that had brought on a lot of production during those uh, those, that, those periods of uh, high $100, a huge exporter giving a lot of, of uh, competitive advantage and being able to negotiate uh, with the U.S. and other suppliers as, as countries try to decide where they're going to get uh, their crude from. Um, the uh, 
Administrator Capuano kind of uh, put out the uh, IEA, IEO this morning, and I know the central case has a assumption of about $100 uh, by 2050, uh, with the top line case of up to $185 and a bottom of uh, $45. The EIA always has a very wide band, which uh, a lot of times people kind of get after them about it, but I actually would say it's a very uncertain market when you're talking about that far. Um, it's good to have a, a really wide band. It really does suggest that uncertainty that we have out there. Personally, I think that actually we're probably going to be on more on the lower side. Uh, we have learned that the shale industry has educated the rest of the industry in being able to bring on production much faster at much lower cost. And you've also got those concerns about peak demand that were talked about in the other uh, panel and other, and other places. Uh, and so there's really a potential where we could have much lower prices, which of course uh, will make it a bit more difficult in terms of, uh, in terms of dealing with uh, reducing um, uh, carbon emissions, uh, but will also give a real benefit for those countries that are growing uh, quite rapidly. And we do see, uh, we, we, uh, the administrator talked a bit about demand uh, this morning. I remember in uh, 2013 when the FT put out an article saying that non-OECD demand is now above OECD demand, but not stated there with some of the implications for that. And that was, those implications are, one, those are countries that are still dealing with a lot of, uh, a lot of pollution and still trying to figure out how to manage that. It also meant that the great EIA data that I and lots of people depend on here was becoming less and less useful uh, as you looked at the, you know, the weekly production stats and, uh, and, and supply stats. As you started to get a, a greater sense of trying to understand what was going on in the rest of the world. And I think this is one of the drivers behind the IEA's recognition that they needed to extend their reach beyond their traditional members and really get a better understanding of what, what is going to be uh, happening. It also meant that for a lot of the producers, there really started to be a very big focus on Asia. So you saw several years ago with Saudi Aramco for the first time had its board meeting in Beijing, tra trading up from, uh, from Houston where they had had it many times uh, in the past. You're also seeing a shift in the sort of types of demand. Part of this is as these countries grow, so at the first few years it's about diesel and building these new cities, and now you're starting to get into lighter and lighter fuels, and of course this is also uh, assisted by some policies such as the IMO's policy that will be uh, enacted in January on January 1, where we're going to go uh, from 3.5% sulfur down to 0.5% sulfur. Uh, BCG has done a lot of work on it, and uh, the Center for Global Energy Policy at, uh, up at Columbia has also done uh, a lot of work on that. But the interesting thing is also that... They found trade partners that have other uh, regasification capacity or other um, end users that they can swap the gas with in another basin. And that is actually creating a whole new range of, uh, of trade shift and trade patterns. Um, second big force is that trade deals and trade politics matters. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, trade is not solely driven by economics. We discussed earlier politics, and I add to that uh, in, in this current administration, we saw the use of LNG as a tool and a leverage in trade negotiation and trade discussions. And that has been the case with essentially every single partner's uh, US 
trade partners. And that is reconfigurating also many of the trade uh, patterns that we see. Uh, for US LNG, but not just. If you take the example of the US-China trade war, um, it is impacting first and foremost the US-China trade, uh, but also actually redirecting trade flow between other non-US suppliers and, non, um, and, and other buyers. Um, so we see that um, the conflict, uh, those trade wars, are also accelerating uh, final investment decision in other uh, jurisdictions, in other countries. And that's crucial because the, where investment decisions are going to be taken, whether it's on the regasification side or on the liquefaction side, will in the future influence trade flows. Um, so since the beginning of the trade war, we've seen that there has been three major final investment decisions being taken outside the US, uh, in, one in Canada, one in Mozambique, uh, and one in Russia. And those are going to be major growth in future supply and bringing additional trade flows. So before this investment decision, Canada's West Coast was not yet on the map uh, to provide LNG to Asia, now it is. Um, it, the jury, I think, is still out on whether those trade wars and trade negotiations are harming or not US LNG. It's too soon to tell, uh, because on some regards, some of uh, the Asian partners of the US have been very receptive to those trade renegotiations and are actually buying more US LNG or have signed new LNG contracts. Um, however, in the medium term, even if it um, um, benefits rival suppliers from the US, in the longer term it can impact everybody because of lower growth of LNG trade or slower economic uh, growth. Um, third um, big um, force is uh, geopolitics. So geopolitics matters, and by this I mean that as Asia is growing as um, a big um, um, a big consumer uh, of natural gas, they will also uh, prefer supply diversification and diversification of trade routes too. And the fact that we are currently in an oversupply market and the fact that supply will continue to be abundant means also that those buyers have an unusual level of influence uh, to direct the growth of supply and where growth, this growth of supply will come from. Um, and for instance, um, interestingly, the trade route that was the most used in 2018 was the Japan-Australia trade route. Um, so Japan is the largest LNG buyer, but Australia was the second largest LNG supplier. And it's not the Qatar-Japan route that was the most used. We talked earlier about the Strait of Hormuz disruption, and I think in the future um, that will also impact geopolitics, and those geopolitical risks will increasingly impact decisions making for where, are, where is the next um, big supplier coming from, and whether we want more expansion as um, and I think that we don't see it yet in Asia, but eventually end consumers uh, may dictate how clean they want their um, energy mix and how clean they want their gas. So we discussed it also earlier regarding Europe, and I think that's the future 
of trade also that will be dictated by what kind or how clean uh, the end consumers want their, want their gas or their energy supply. Um, so this, um, those four forces, um, market forces, politics and trade economics, geopolitics and environmental are part of the puzzles um, to predict where US LNG flow will go. Um, back in 2015, um, I wrote correctly that uh, US LNG will be exported one-third in Asia, one-third in Europe, and one-third in the rest of the world. That's happening now in 2019. Um, but I've always said also LNG is going to be priced in the future. So there are ongoing uh, negotiations between um, exporters and importers on how to price the future um, LNG contracts uh, for new projects, for instance. And uh, we, we see a move away from oil indexation um, and, and increased creativity and diversity uh, around the, 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 tra the formulas for, um, for con in contracts, uh, including the use of um, um, hub-based um, pricing, like uh, TTF for Europe or JKM in Asia. And, and I think that trend illustrates um, the, the willingness first not to see the Asian um, premium come back, um, and, and also um, the willingness to have gas, for now, part of the fuel mix, as long as it's um, competitive with their other fuels. Um, so most of the countries uh, in, in Asia are... So we have generally wealthy people and generally wealthy societies talking about adapting to climate change, but this, uh, the, the, the reality is often different in the develop, developing world. What I have seen recently, though, it's been this kind of move to re this realization also in the developed world. So when you see actually the outlooks, the IEA outlooks and so on, and, and BP outlook going forward, you actually see that there is this acknowledgement that it's not enough to push in renewables. Um, it's, you have to do something about that carbon uh, that we will emit globally um, because of the development that's happening in the, uh, in the developing world. So there is, has been a bigger push uh, to look into how to store carbon, um, CCS, uh, and different type of technologies that can, uh, that can afford it. And I think that's where, where we really kind of need to think, how can we incorporate uh, you know, our, our experience, but also how can we make sure that the experience of others is also incorporated? And in a way that means R&D cannot only happen in the developed world. It has to happen in the developing world, um, which generally doesn't have the resources. So maybe the developed world role is to kind of increase the resources for R&D, bring in uh, scientists, allow the scientists to work there, and so on. So there's a lot of issues that could be resolved somewhat differently by incorporating the needs of, uh, of, of the developing world. And again, it's, it's really, you know, when, when we think about climate change, it's not, the issue is not fossil fuels, it's the emissions. So when we think about the solutions, when you look at emissions, there are different types of solutions. Um, the renewables are a huge deal. Um, but if we don't look at the whole range, we might be missing something. 
And I think the point is not to miss something because of the challenges, particularly in the developing world, Asia, but also increasingly Africa and, and, and uh, of course, Latin America. Um, and we want to make sure that, that we, we just don't kind of close ourselves in our small world and then at the end uh, kind of be faced with a very different reality than we were thinking we're going to face. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, we have about time for a few, for a few questions, so I'll uh, open it up to you. The rules the same as the previous panels. One, wait for the mic. Two, please state your name and affiliation. Three, question in the form of a question, and I always give bonus points for brevity. So, any takers? Uh, you guys mentioned, I'm Peter Volkmar, I'm from TD International. Uh, you mentioned an increase in regional trade happening, um, and we've seen some very large pipelines going from Russia into Europe. How much do you see um, large regional pipeline infrastructures being developed in India and Central Asia and helping um, going around LNG imports and instead doing regional yeah, gas pipelines? Um, so that's a good question because we haven't talked much about uh, pipeline trade. Um, I, I think, you know, pipeline trade um, in some regions becomes kind of a dinosaur compared to the LNG trade, which is much more flexible and, um, and easier in many ways because you don't depend on one supplier or on one customer. Um, however, uh, you mentioned Russia, Russia to China, Russia to Europe. Um, it gives to both markets a lot of security of supply, but at a, at a high cost. Um, for, for, you know, on the geopolitical, geopolitical level and, and, and other levels too. Uh, I think, um, you know, we'll have to take region by region, but, um, um, you know, the East Med, for example, is an area we're going to see growth of pipeline trade potentially um, at the expense of LNG imports. Um, this region may export at one point also LNG. Um, um, so uh, in, I, I believe that, you know, the use of LNG as a tool in negotiations can work and sometimes it can harm also. Um, so it's a double-edged sword, and it depends who is the recipient. I think for European um, European trade partners of the U.S., it was less successful in a way, and much more successful with some Asian partners. Um, but the story is not uh, over. Um, you know, there are many renegotiations of deals right now. Um, there is, um, I think, um, a thinking that, um, um, you know, for the U.S., um, it, may, it might be better not to be too dependent on one single market, so it's better to diversify destination early on while the U.S. is ramping up its exports. Um, so I think that's what you meant by, you know, not being too dependent on China. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's hard now to, um, to build new U.S. projects without relying at all on the Chinese market. So the U.S. LNG exporters are being deprived right now from one large market, but they have put in place mitigation strategies. One is like being, remaining being very competitive and two trying, you know, beyond China to find other markets. Um, 
I don't know if I answer your question. On the U.S. or uh, well, China right now has a choice. You know, since we are in a very well supplied market, China has a choice between its suppliers and can actually, you know, uh, pit one against the other. Um, so, you know, most of the consumers right now are in the driving seats right now. Well, uh, I think that about wraps up our marathon session. So uh, thank you to our panelists. Thank you to everyone in the room. And thank you to everyone on the, uh, online for uh, watching this uh, great session.